Revelation chapter 9. This is the word of the Lord. Please give it your full attention. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven, which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. He opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit, like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. This is God's holy and fallible word. Let us pray. Gracious Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask you now once more for help both to hear, to understand, to believe, and to obey. Help us, Lord, to see all that you have revealed to us in your word. I decrease once more so that you may increase, be glorified in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, brothers and sisters, uh, I greet you once more in our in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And welcome you once more this afternoon as we continue our study through the apocalypse of John, the revelation of Jesus Christ. We turn, or we return now, to the sounding of the seven trumpets. These trumpets come after the silence in heaven in chapter 8. They are meant to be a callback, these seven trumpets. They are meant to be a callback to the seven plagues that God inflicted upon Egypt by way of judgment. In the first trumpet, the vegetation of the earth is burned, one-third. In the second trumpet, the kings and rulers of the earth are brought low. In the third trumpet... A third of the waters of the earth are made bitter. In the fourth trumpet, third of the sun, third of the moon, third of the stars were struck so that the earth was darkened. Remember from our sermon this morning that these things are not meant to be taken literally, but they're meant to be taken symbolically. They are communicating a certain truth, but it's important that we don't take these things as absolute literal images of what they, what is true. What, what then is true, we should ask? What is true is this, that the world is in a constant and cyclical, that means returning, reoccurring state of judgment. All of the woes that mankind experience in this world, they are a result of the judgment of God upon the wicked of the earth. The woes are a result of God's judgment upon the wicked. Now, as I was preparing, I thank God because something came to at least to my mind, and that is, I think I need to clarify something. Because in my sermons thus far, I think that I have made it appear as though there is coming a time when there will be no water. That there is coming a time when there will be no food. Or that there is coming a time when there will be no vegetation in all of the world. I apologize if, if, if that's the conclusion that maybe you've gathered through my teachings thus far. The reality is, these woes, they have been ongoing since the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. And they will continue They have been happening, they are happening, and they will continue to happen, all of these woes. So I don't want us to conclude that the things that we're seeing are somewhere in the future. They have been, they are now, and they will be until Christ returns. And they are cyclical, meaning they are reoccurring in some areas stronger than others. But they are reoccurring, they are constant. There is this constant cycle of woe, and sometimes in greater intensity than others, but it will continue until Christ returns. I hope that that's clear. These cycles, they are a part also of God's redemptive purposes for the elect, as well as God's judgment upon the wicked. These things are all happening as God is saving. They're a part of His plan. These things are all happening as God is judging. They are a part of His plan. And they will continue this way until Christ returns. 
the hope that we have is this, that if we endure, if we, we hold fast to Christ, even unto death, then we will be given all of the promises that Christ has procured or, or accomplished in the person and work of His flesh. Now, today, we turn to the fifth judgment or the fifth trumpet. And I will say that this morning, this afternoon, we are not going to consider all of the details surrounding the fifth trumpet. We will, we will do that, Lord willing, next week. I, I was telling uh, one of the brothers, I don't know how, I listened to a few sermons, I don't know how someone preaches an entire chapter. There's just too much. So this morning, unfortunately, you're stuck with the first verse. Uh, we, this morning, with God's help, we are going to consider the star that fell. This morning, with God's help, we are going to consider the star that fell. First point, three points. The star that fell from the bottomless pit. Let's say that way. Uh, Verse 1. Let's go there. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw from heaven a star which had fallen to the earth. And the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. He opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went out Uh, went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. The imagery that we are given, it is no doubt dark and demonic. It has been said that of all of the imagery in the book of Revelation, the imagery that we find here in this ninth chapter is the most challenging. The, The harshness of this fifth trumpet is announced by an eagle. In the 8th chapter, verse 13, the, this eagle is flying about. He, it's meant to give this picture that, that, that the eagle is circling earth, as it were. And as he's circling, verse 13, he's saying, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. Look at your Bibles, not at me. Because of the remaining blast of the trumpet on the, of the three angels who are about to sound. You will remember that the phrase... Those who dwell on the earth is most often, if not always, used in Revelation to refer to the wicked. Woe to the wicked, the eagle is announcing. They are the unrighteous to whom these three woes are announced. The three woes are in correlation to the three final trumpets. There is uh, devastation brewing. Trouble is brewing. In fact, the, the eagle who circles could also be interpreted the vulture who circles. We all know that when we see vultures circling, it, it is indicative of something that is dead. The eagle is warning of death. Death is at hand. And, and when we see what's being opened, it, it makes sense that death is at hand. Death has been a part of the great suffering and tribulation that has occurred since Christ rose. And it begins with His own unjustified death. Woes are announced, but we must not be dismayed, for we know that this eagle, who is announcing that trumpets are about to blow, that His being sent to announce... The arrival of the trumpet sounding is all a part of God's plan and purpose. The eagle is circling and saying, death is at hand. And and we might be tempted to fear. The eagle is circling and saying, uh, trouble is brewing. And we would be tempted to, to fear and be dismayed as well if we did not realize that the trumpets and even the eagle and even the trouble that is brewing and coming are all a part of the plans and purposes of God. The woes that come forth, they are decreed by God. So it is with the judgment of the wicked and the salvation of the righteous. All of these are a part of the plans and purposes of God. Therefore, we we who are in Christ need not fear. It's important to say, because as we get into the very first verse of chapter 9, John is given a vision, look at your Bibles, of a star that's fallen from heaven to earth. Now, uh, look at the the tense of this falling. It is in the perfect 
tense, meaning John did not see the star when it fell. Rather, John sees that the star has fallen. The distinction is important. What John is seeing is the effects of the fallen star, not the star when it actually falls. Now, here's why we're only going to get to one verse, because when I read the Scriptures, I ask the Scriptures a lot of questions. I ask God a lot of questions, if you will. So my question to the Scriptures was, who is, what is this star that has fallen from heaven to the earth? I hope that that's probably like you. Maybe you're asking the same question. The language used is that of being, uh, this is important if you're taking notes, cast down. Or a falling star, right? And it always is in reference to the judgment of Satan and evil angels. So when we're seeing this this star that's fallen from heaven, it's only in reference to, because of this casting down idea, always in reference to Satan and fallen angels. Angels who are demonic. This fallen angel is described, interestingly enough, is described in verse 1, if you're looking at your Bibles, as having been given the keys to the bottomless pit. This fallen star has the keys to the bottomless pit. Listen to this in verse 11. John describes the role of this fallen angel for those who are in the abyss. We'll get to the abyss eventually. Verse 11, they have as a king over them the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is uh, Abaddon. And in Greek, he has the name Apollyon. So this fallen angel who has fallen from heaven has the keys of the bottomless pit, the abyss, He also has been designated as king of the abyss. And he bears two names. One name means, Brother Dustin was preaching at the rescue mission about two names. Well, here's two names for you. Destruction and destroyer. That would be a good contradiction, or a good contrast between the two. Destruction and destroyer. This fallen star is Satan himself. And he, Satan, has been given a certain authority over the bottomless pit, which is the abyss. Now, what is the bottomless pit? The bottomless pit is the realm of demons. Now, it is also within the realm of Hades. If you're anything like me growing up, you only associated Hades with only hell and only judgment. But we've learned through Pastor Isaiah's teaching that Hades is essentially the realm of the dead. It's the spiritual world of the dead. And so in Hades, there are compartments. There is the paradise, Abraham's bosom, place of comfort. And there is the uh, place of judgment for the wicked, which would also be designated as the bottomless pit. So within the realm of Hades, there are two compartments. That of comfort and that of judgment. That of peace and that of torment. These angels, fallen angels, and this fallen star, they dwell in this compartment of judgment. Very simply, it's the place where demons dwell. It's synonymous with, again, the realm of Hades, but it is the place of the dead who are going to be judged. This is found in Job 38.16, Ezekiel 31.15, and Jonah 2.6. If you need those verses later, I'll give them to you. The place is the realm of the dead, but again, not paradise, not Abraham's bosom that is spoken of by Christ, not a place of comfort. Demons don't dwell there. Demons dwell here. Demons also don't dwell in heaven. Now, heaven is also a part of the spiritual realm. Heaven would be the place of comfort. It would be Abraham's bosom. Demons don't dwell there. Demons have been expelled from there. John has said that that he saw the angel who had fallen from heaven. It's the place of suffering where they dwell. The pit is the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is the place of torment. It is the place of judgment. Not to be mistaken again with the place of of comfort... uh, 
all who have ears to hear, from the youngest to the oldest, you don't want to go to the place of torment. You don't want to go to the pit. Uh, There will be no comfort there, no peace there. Weeping and gnashing of teeth is all that that, those who are there will experience. Isaiah 24, 21-22 says that God will punish angels and evil kings. Interesting, evil kings. And they will be gathered together as prisoners in the pit. And they will be confined in prison after many days and they will be punished. Job, Ezra, and Peter, they affirm that fallen angels, they are imprisoned. Meaning this is their place in the pit, in the abyss. They are awaiting their final judgment. When the Lord Jesus encountered uh, demons or individuals who were possessed by demons uh, and even pigs, what do they what do they beg for? For Christ not to do to them. Don't throw us into the pit. Not yet, right? They are awaiting a final judgment, which we'll get to in a moment. This description is what is uppermost in the mind of John when he speaks of the bottomless pit. It is the place where evil spirits are confined who are also under God's sovereign rule. Now, I just said something very interesting at the last of that. Those who are in the pit are under God's sovereign rule. How are we able to say that they're under God's sovereign rule? Listen to this. When Satan is described as being the king of the pit and as also being the one who holds the keys to the realm of darkness. So how could God be sovereign when it appears as though the person, Satan, who has keys and is called king of that realm is actually the one who is sovereign or in control? Doesn't this imply that Satan actually is sovereign over the pit? The short answer is no. The short answer is no. Verse 1 tells us what? Keys are given to him. First, keys are are given to him. If keys must be given, that means they come from someone who ultimately rules. If keys are given, they come from someone who ultimately rules. So there is a, a designated authority that has been given to Satan, but it's not an ultimate authority. That's important. Remember, our Lord said in the very first chapter, Revelation 117, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Christ says, I have the keys of death and Hades. They belong to Christ. And it is Christ who ultimately bestows the keys of the bottomless pit to Satan. Now, someone may say, well, from your first sermon, you said we're not to take take these things literally. Well, we're not. But they are communicating something to us that is true. That there has been a certain kind of, of overseeing rulership that Satan has been given by God. But think about to where. Think about to where. We go, wow, he has authority. But where? In the bottomless pit. He has been allowed to to rule in a certain way. He has an office, if you will, that that is a kind of an office of demotion. He has been brought low. Now, this is going to be a continuous theme throughout the sermon. That there's going to be this theme of Satan constantly being brought low. Keep that in mind. He's given a type of rule in a realm that is reserved for the wicked, fallen angels. Not sovereign rule. It's limited rule. If you take your notes, it is that. It is limited rule. It's a rule in a realm of demons, but it is a limited rule. He does not have the keys of heaven. He also does not have the keys of earth either. He's king of the demons. I know that that's a hard kind of language for some of us to, to like accept and embrace. I was telling Pastor Isaiah about that this morning. But we have to deal with the text. It's what the text says. So there's something about that that is, that is absolutely true that we have to wrestle with. Now, we must ask the question, why? Because that's the question I ask when I'm studying. Why? Why have these keys been given to Satan? I think it's also important for us to keep this in mind once more. Revelation 9 and 1, Then the fifth angel sounded. Who is this fifth angel? He is one of the seven holy angels that have been commissioned by God to set in motion all that God has decreed in history. 
he has been given, this angel has been given the responsibility to announce the unleashing of the plans of God and the purposes of God. Satan also is being commissioned. When we see that keys are given to Satan, the very next verse, verse 2, Satan then must open. Satan has keys. But at the announcement of the trumpet, only then, then and only then, is Satan allowed to go to that pit and open it for the unleashing of what God has decreed. Do you see that how in one way Satan is supposed to be ruler and have an office of rulership, but yet he's still being told what to do? Satan can only do what God allows him to do. Satan is being used by God to unleash holy purposes from God. The darkness and, and the, the, the smoke and, and all of the locusts that will come. If you can imagine locusts crawling out of, of, a, of, a, of a sewer. All of these things coming out are a part of the plans and purposes of God? Yes, they are. They are a part of God's righteous judgment and also God's salvation. So while Satan has the keys, he's told when and how he can use them. He's not autonomous. He's given authority, but it is a limited authority. He cannot do anything that he's not allowed to do. Therefore, when we read of this fallen star, Satan, who opens the bottomless pit to release locusts, we must remember that it is at the sound of the trumpet from God that Satan is given permission to release the woes that will be released. Next week, we will talk in more detail about the locust that comes forth from this bottomless pit. Now, let's go into this further. Uh, number two, the fallen star. Or the fall of the star. The fall of the star. Revelation chapter 9 and verse 1 again. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star from heaven, which had fallen to the earth. We've already identified this fallen star as being Satan. When and how exactly did Satan fall from heaven? For many of us, we have come to believe, whether through hearing or through study on our own, that Satan fell from heaven when he and the other angels rebelled against God just after creation. But this idea comes from Revelation. Let's go there. Chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7. A few pages over. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels warring against the dragon. Waging war against the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who was called the devil and Satan, who deceives the world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Many of you have heard that account all of your lives, and you have heard that this happened, listen to this, just after creation. The reason why I emphasize just after creation was because Satan was not present prior to creation. Satan was not present prior to creation. Because Satan is a created being. Therefore, he is a part of creation. Satan is a part of God's creation. And therefore, a, God, a part of God's creative purposes. God has created Satan for a reason. So in terms of when, most, because that's what's normally taught, and I studied everybody this past week, hold the belief that Satan fell from heaven after creation. How long after creation? No one knows. And to speculate would be unprofitable. What was the reason for his fall? This too is yet another matter. There is much consistency about this, by the way. I, I read everyone from uh, Owen to Aquinas to um, Charles Stanley. <laughs> they all agree on this particular point. There's some diversity, but only for wackos. Um, scholars agree, and they, they use these two verses to make their argument for why Satan fell. Let's go to, let's go to them. Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel chapter 28. Very interesting here in Ezekiel. Now, in Ezekiel, the prophet receives a word from the Lord. 
And this word is against the leader or king of Tyre. So when you're reading Ezekiel 28, it is, it is intentionally, initially I should say, it is initially against the king of Tyre. He's a human king. He's a human being who was given a position of leadership. Now this is all important, a position of leadership. And because of his position, he began to be polluted by his own power. Let's read. The Lord reveals the, Lord reveals the heart of the king of Tyre to the king of Tyre through a prophet. Verse 2. Because your heart is lifted up, and you have said, here's what the king of Tyre said, I am a god. I sit in the seat of gods, in the heart of the seas. That Tyre was located near the ocean. Yet you are a man and not a god. Although you make your although you although you make your like wait, where's the verse? Uh, although you make your heart like the heart of God. The Lord through the prophet Ezekiel is revealing the heart of the king of Tyre within him. It's, it's almost as if the Lord is pulling out the king of Tyre's heart and saying, This is what's inside of you. The kings of that time were called gods because they wielded the power to be able to destroy a life and spare a life. They ruled with authority over lives of nations. So therefore they were regarded as godlike. God says of unjust kings of those days who regarded themselves as gods and who were regarded as gods, he says in Psalm 82 in verse 1, God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers, saying, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? God is speaking about unjust leaders. He says to them who deal unjustly, verse 5, They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are God's. And all of you are sons of the Most High. This is what was said of them. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any one of these princes. So God says to those who regard uh, kings who are in positions of authority, God says to those who say, they're sons of God, they're sons of the Most High. God says to them, but you will die like men because you are not a God. What is the king of Tyre saying about himself? I'm a God. I sit on the sea like a god. These so-called gods are being called out appropriately by God as not being a god. For those wicked kings who had believed that they were somehow divine, God makes it clear, the king of Tyre, and to all men, that they are not God. The Lord goes on to say uh, in Isaiah 43.10, You are my, my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen so that you may make known and believe me and understand that I am He. Listen to what God says about Himself. Before me, there was no God formed. There will be none after me. God makes it clear. He is the only God. There was none before Him and there will be none after Him. Let's let's set that in, in, in stone. God is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. None before Him, none after Him. And he proclaims this to the, listen to this word now, the prideful king of Tyre. Listen to what God says in Ezekiel 28.3. Listen to this. Behold, you are wiser than Daniel. Now is God making a true statement or is God making a sarcastic statement? The latter is true. God is potentially repeating to the king of Tyre what the king of Tyre believed about himself. That he was wiser than Daniel. So God is essentially throwing this this, um, audacious claim back into his face. Wow. You're God. You're wiser than Daniel. Verse 3. There is no secret that is a match for you. It's essentially saying there is no problem you can't solve. There is no riddle that you can't figure out. God is using sarcasm. 
by your wisdom and understanding, you have acquired gold and silver and all your treasuries. God's saying, you got it all. By your great wisdom, by your trade, you have increased your riches and your heart is lifted up because of your riches. God says, you say you're a God, you're wiser than Daniel. You've got all this gold and this riches by yourself. Good job. That's why your heart's lifted up. Because you think you did this. Stick with me, we're getting to a point. The Lord is accusing the king of crediting all that he had to himself. That he, that the king is the source of all power and wealth and wisdom that he's, he's acquired. Let's look at verse 6 through 10. Therefore the Lord, said, the Lord God says, Because you have made your heart like the heart of God, meaning because you think you're God, therefore behold, I will bring strangers upon you. Here's Here's how strong you are. Here's how powerful you are. Strangers are coming. Meaning foreigners. The most ruthless of the nations. You think you're powerful. Ruthless people are coming to show you that you are not. And they will draw their swords against the beauty of your wisdom. Here comes your wisdom. What's going to happen? Cut down. Defile your splendor. They will bring you down... Where? To the pit. And you will die the death of those who are slain. In the heart of the seas will you say, I am a God. In the presence of your slayer. Though you are a man and not God. In the hands of those who wound you. Are you going to still say when they are cutting you down, I'm God? When, when they're slicing you down, are you still going to declare, I'm God? See what God is doing here. How, how jovial God is, is being in bringing the, the prideful low. He says, You will die the death of the uncircumcised by the hand of strangers, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. The Lord makes it clear. The king has believed within the depths of his soul that he is a God. As a result... The pride of this man against the one true God will be his downfall. He will be brought down by a wicked king, another wicked king, another foreign king, and he will bring him down low. It's what God does. He sets kings up and he brings them down. He says, will you still say I'm a God? Then the Lord makes this interesting Statement, but transition. Look at verse 12 through 19. That are they are initially directed to the king of Tyre, right? The one who's believed that he's a god. But then as God continues to speak, he's giving us indications that there are more creatures that God is referring to that are guilty of the same exact sin of that of the king of Tyre. Notice that the word from the Lord is first a lamentation. It's a song of sorrow over the sin of the king of Tyre. But but is it only about the king of Tyre? He says in verse 12, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. This is a most interesting statement simply because the word perfect is used twice here. See that? At this point, we must ask ourselves, was the king of Tyre perfect? Was he perfect? Was was the king of Tyre the sum and and seal of perfection? Uh, It's a reference to to the whole measure, meaning there was nothing lacking in you. In other words, when you were made, you were made exactly the way that you were supposed to be. There was nothing missing. When God created this creature, there was nothing left out. Listen to this language. He was a perfectly rational creature. What does that sound like? The creature was perfectly whole in terms also of appearance. There was nothing missing on you. The Lord is making a parallel between the king of Tyre and who else? And who else? Well, let's let's read verse 13 to find out. You were in Eden. Pause. Who was in Eden? Let's name all the people that we know were in Eden. Well, 
Eve and Satan. Who is this directed to? I would argue Adam, Eve, and Satan. Couldn't be God. God was there, but it wasn't about God. It's obvious that the king of Tyre is not the only person in view here. But the king of Tyre and his condition is analogous to the other to the others who were also in Eden. God describes stones that were upon this person. You see that there? I'm not going to read through the stones. You see them. They are stones that are placed upon the breastplate of the priest. But there's something wrong with these stones. They're not in right order. Because the king of Tyre is not a priest. He's a king. But he has a position of authority. He has a, an office that has been given to him. Uh, did Adam have an office? Yes. Ladies, did Eve have an office? Yes. She's a helpmate. Also by implication, there was some kind of office. What was it? We don't know. That Satan also had. Verses 14 through 15. Let's read that. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. There was a role that you had been given, that, that had been entrusted to you. God had given it to him. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day that you were created. Stop there. Meaning, everything that you needed, you were the model of perfection. There was nothing lacking in you. Whenever we think about Satan, some people say, he was beautiful. He was the most beautiful. Uh, maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. But what we know about Satan is that he was whole. He was exactly who he was supposed to be. He was made just the way that God had intended him to be. What was the problem? Until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were filled internally with violence. See, other, other versions will say, by, the, by your great beauty. This version says, by the abundance of your trade. Believing everything that Tyre believed about himself. His appearance, his position, his wealth, and his wisdom. See that, that other versions will just sum it up to beauty. But God's not making it just about beauty. He's making it about everything. Wisdom, position, uh, yes, appearance. All of these things, collectively, God says, they filled you with violence and you sinned, therefore I have cast you, there's that cast again, cast you as profane from the mountain of God and I have destroyed you. Verse 17, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You were corrupted. Your, you corrupted your wisdom by reasoning of your splendor. I cast you again to the ground. I put you before the kings that they may see you. What was it that caused these residents, if you will, of Eden? Satan was not a resident, but he was there. I'll be careful about that. What did they all have in common with, with the king of Tyre? Pride. Pride is what they had in common. I do believe that Isaiah also describes both the heart of Adam and the heart of Satan and, and even the heart of Eve, if you will, to the king of Babylon. Let's go there. Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12. Here's what's in the hearts of the prideful. <clears throat> How you have fallen from heaven, O star. There it is, star of the morning. Right? John says, I saw a star fall. Uh, Isaiah 14, 12. Son of the dawn, you have been cut down to the earth. There it is. You have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, here's what caused him to fall. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly. In the recesses of the, of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. What is God's response? Nevertheless, you will be thrust, cast down. Where? To Sheol, the realm of the dead. 
the recesses of what? The pit. There it is again. In both instances, from Ezekiel, from Isaiah, and even now from John, we are seeing this this theme of being cast down. This theme of pride causing someone... Oh, you've heard that before, haven't you? That pride goes before the fall. Because what is true of Tyre, what was true of Adam, Eve, and Satan, is true for anyone who exalts themselves and believes that they are somehow someday God. They will always fall. Always fall. Some of these brothers, our dear brothers, will say things to me about um, some of the false teachers and, and how they are. I always will keep in my mind and even say out of my mouth that it, they'll come falling down. It'll happen eventually. Yes, Brother Stephen Furtick. They will all eventually come tumbling down. No one can exalt himself and stand. Adam was guilty of this sin, and Satan was too. Satan was too. Attempting to do what? To take something from God that does not belong to God. What is that? Equality with God. The only thing that belongs to God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, equality with God. They reached out to grasp something that was not theirs. This is why Christ did not see it robbery. That He was equal with God, because He is equal with God. Because of an overestimation of self, Satan has come tumbling down to earth. Now that's his first fall. The pit will be the next. And we'll get to this in a moment. Let's get to the third point. Third point. Third and finally. Christ's redemption expels Satan. Uh, Revelation 9 and verse 1. Then the fifth angel sounded, I saw a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key to the bottomless pit was given to him. Now, John sees a star, Satan, fallen from heaven to earth. When exactly, when exactly does, did this happen? Uh, it's another question that's perplexed me over the past few days. I've heard a variety of, of positions on this. When pride was found within Satan, Satan was cast to the earth. He's expelled from the holy presence of God, right? He no longer has access to God, right? Similar to the way that, 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 that Adam was cast out of the presence of God, out of the temple of God. But didn't Adam have still a certain kind of access to God? And doesn't Satan also have a certain kind of access to God? Is he only on the earth, not able to have, to have access to God? Is he, is he simply just roaming? In Ezekiel, there's this language of the the prideful one being brought down low. Again, we know that pride goes before the fall. The Lord tells the serpent that he will eat dust as he crawls upon the earth all the days of his life. So that means Satan is loose upon the earth, right? That that when you see a a snake, you should run because that's the devil. That's what I used to think when I was a kid. It's important that we take this note that that the language of being cast down, being brought low, is most likely in reference to a former position. The same way that Adam is removed from his position. The same way that the king of Tyre will be removed from his position. Now, what position was that? Uh, I think saying that Satan was the choir leader of heaven is saying more than Scripture actually says. So if we go, yes, he he was the leader of song in heaven. Scripture doesn't say that. So we must be careful not to say that. What was his role in heaven? I don't know. But there was something there that, that is a mystery to us. Let me say this. Scripture tells us more about Satan's sin and his demise than about what he was and what he did prior to the fall. Because Scripture doesn't want you to... God doesn't want you to fantasize about things, to um, 
create more things than you need to. Here's what you need to know about Satan. That he is your enemy. Not in any way, shape, or form that he is for you. Or ever was. Now, whatever the position was, it's been stripped for him, from him, and he is now brought low. So where is he now? These are all questions that I'm preparing as I'm studying. Some might say, well, he's in hell. He's been given the keys of the bottomless pit, but where is he exactly now? Uh, let's go to Ephesians. And these verses will all be in Ephesians. We're coming to a close, so hang with me, okay? Ephesians. Two, two. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the listen, the prince of the power of the air. That's heavenly places. Of the spirit that is at work now in the sons of disobedience. What is that? It's the realm of Hades. Those who are in the realm of judgment. Uh, Ephesians 3.10 So that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known throughout the church to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places, the realm of the dead. Ephesians 6.12 For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness. It should be italicized in heavenly places, realm of the dead. Satan, yes, is still in the realm of the dead. Has he been completely cast out of heaven? The answer, in short, is yes. But he still is in the realm of the dead without a position or privilege that was once his. Meaning what? Okay, we're, we're, we're coming to a close, so hang with me. Consider Job. Interesting, in the book of Job, when the sons of God arrive to give an account to, to God, uh, Satan is also there. Well, where, where must the sons of the angels? Where must the angels of God go in order to give an account to God? They must go to heaven. And when they go there, Satan is among them. What does God say? Where'd you come from? Satan says, "From roaming on the earth, to and fro." Satan is there in the presence of God. He has been cast out, but he's not autonomous, meaning he can't do whatever he wants to do. He must give an account for his actions. He's only allowed to do what what he's allowed to do. But then God says something, doesn't he? God says, when Satan stands before him, he says, Have you considered my my servant Job? And, And then listen to what God says about Job. No one like him on the earth. A blameless man, upright man, fearing God, turning away from evil. What is God doing? God's commending Job's righteousness in front of an unrighteous one. God is saying, this person is a righteous man. He has faith in me. What does God do? Or what does Satan do in response to God's commendation of Job? He accuses who? God and Job. Satan says to God, does Job fear God for nothing? There's a reason why he he, he serves you. Because have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hand and his possession have increased in the land. He says, he only worships you because you won't let him be touched. Satan is accusing God God's character of being unjust. Of being not right. He says, but touch him, put your hand toward him, 
and he will curse you to your face. Not only is he accusing God of wickedness, but he's also accusing Job of wickedness. Job, uh, God, you, he only worships you because you won't let him be touched. And Job, if you allow him to be touched, will curse you to your face because he's also wicked. The role of Satan prior to Christ is to be an accuser of the elect. The only thing that he could do prior in the past was to stand before God and accuse you. In Zechariah 3, Satan attempts to accuse Joshua the high priest, who's standing before God in filthy clothes. Filthy clothes are meant to represent sin. And he's rebuked by the Lord. The Old Testament text portrays Satan as doing this day and night, accusing the saints of God the elect of God, of sin. Here's what he accuses us of. They are not worthy of salvation. They don't deserve grace. They're not worthy of it. They're not worthy of the blessings that have been given to us by God. And Satan accuses God of being unjust. God of being somehow corrupt. Of not giving the elect the punishment that we deserve because of our sin. Satan's accusation is that because of sin... There is a necessary penalty of judgment and death that should be given to you and me. Is he lying? Do you deserve grace? Are you worthy of salvation? Should all of the blessings that you have... Look at your little ones. I'm seeing sister there sitting with her babies and brother there sitting with... Do you just heard these wonderful blessings that you guys have? Some of you are sitting there with, with health. Maybe not the best, but you're alive. Do you deserve all these things? Do we deserve punishment because of our sin? Satan has a good case in one sense. The elect are not worthy of salvation. We've done nothing to receive grace. Because of our sin, we are deserving of God's righteous judgment. And yet the saints of the Old Testament, when they died, those who died in faith, they they were ushered into the comfort of Abraham's bosom and did not see the judgment of God. Why 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 are they comforted? Why are they ushered into... Abraham's bosom into Abraham's arms if you will it's because they held on to the promise that Abraham held on to the promise that God because he believed in it credited to Abraham as righteousness it was a promise that a seed would come from Abraham who would bless the nations that the just The justice of God would be satisfied by one who, like Abraham's son, would be given a substitute. That there would be a lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And we know, of course, that we're talking about our Christ. The death and resurrection of Christ has banished Satan from his former right. What was the right that he had? To accuse the elect of sin. Because of the death and resurrection of Christ, the penalty that was due to us has been paid in full. Christ's death was the penalty that God exacted for the sins of all of those who have been saved by faith in Christ. We have been delivered from judgment. The spotless lamb was also our substitutionary lamb. And he was slain And he purchased for God a people from his own blood. Through the death of Christ, we have been loosed of any penalty because of his blood. Through the death of Christ, through the resurrection of Christ, the power of Satan has been nullified. Therefore, brothers and sisters, Satan no longer has any basis for any of his accusations against the elect. Since the penalty that we deserved 
the penalty that he's argued for. They deserve it. It's been executed and completed by Christ. Christ has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. Therefore, Christ says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. When his disciples come back and they are excited that even the demons submit to them, Christ says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What does Christ see? Christ sees in in that fall that as his kingdom is being inaugurated, Satan's kingdom is being brought down low. And it's, again, this constant descent of Satan. Satan was in heaven, brought down to the earth. Satan is on earth, he's being brought down to the pit. Satan is in the pit, he will one day be in the lake of fire and destroyed forevermore. His end and his existence is a constant descent. While the existence, I shouldn't even say the existence, while the glory of Christ is a constant ascent. He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings forevermore. This is why Paul can say, and I want you to turn there. This is why Paul can say in Romans chapter 8, I want you to see it with your own eyes. Romans chapter 8 and verse 31. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for all of us, how will He also with Him freely give all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ is He who died. Yes, rather was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who also intercedes for us. What? Or who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we are overwhelmingly, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced, listen, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Satan will not be kicked out of heaven someday in the future. Satan is kicked out now. Where is he? Yes, he is allowed right now by God to wreak havoc until Christ returns. Satan has been released. God has given him a freedom to deceive, to deceive the nations, to go about on a short leash and to do all of the wicked things that are within him. But his time is limited. His ability to do what he does is limited. Because Christ will soon return as our conquering king and destroy him once and for all. Satan will be kicked out. No, he is kicked out. He has no power. He has been given a key to his final home. Here's the keys to your house where you will be utterly destroyed. Sounds good? Anybody envious of the fact or mad at the fact that he has those keys now? (laughs) No. He was thrown down at the first creation. And he is thrown down at the new creation when Christ inaugurates the kingdom. And he will finally and ultimately be thrown down at the consummation of the new heaven and the new earth. Revelation 12, 11 And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. Satan, dear saint, has already been defeated. Christ has already won in this person and work. If you are in Christ, Satan has no authority over you. If you are in Christ, you cannot be demon-possessed. If you are in Christ, there are no demons in your house. You, don't, you need not call someone to sprinkle holy water on your house or lay hands on the wood of your, of your house. Nothing's going to happen if you are in Christ. Stop tripping. The strong man has been bound by the work of Christ. If you are in Christ, Satan has no accusation against you. 
Christ is holy and blameless beyond reproach. Therefore, if your faith is in Christ, you are holy and blameless beyond reproach. You need not fear the night. and You need not hide in the day. Christ is victorious. And the lake of fire is Satan's end. Rejoice. For Christ has defeated our great enemy Satan. And he has been cast down low. To God be the glory. Let us pray.